Hi, this is Dr. Tina Webb, and you are listening to the Coping Season Podcast, the show that discusses mental and emotional wellness to help black men and black women begin to heal and cope with the effects of emotional distress. Although I am a licensed clinical social worker, please note that this podcast is not meant to be used as a substitute for a relationship with a licensed therapist. Get ready to laugh, think, and be entertained. It's time to cope. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm so glad to be back with you today. I've been looking forward to talking to you again. And here we are. Before we get started, I like to acknowledge one of our listeners. Well, I don't like to call you listeners. You are my co-host. So one of our co-hosts wrote to me after last week's episode on bipolar disorder. And, you know, I received so many letters and feedback about the episode and people saying that it was helpful and it was insightful. And I'm really grateful for this feedback. You know, I will continue to address these issues of mental health. And I'm glad that it's helpful. One of the letters I received is from, we'll just say their initial is D, because I don't know if he or she wants me to say their full name. But you know who you are. D wrote to me and said that they are coping with being married or in a relationship with someone who has mental illness and or dealing with childhood traumas. This also includes significant other having first degree family members, such as a parent or sibling with untreated mental illness as well. I just want to say thank you for sharing your story with us. And I ask that we all keep D uplifted. You know, D, you can go on to my Instagram page at Dr. Tina Webb. And I posted some resources there that might be helpful to you. And as Um, We continue on. I will be addressing the topic of trauma and mental health in upcoming episodes. I just wanted to make sure that we send you strength and support today. Thank you for writing to me. You know, if anyone has a question or a comment or would like to hear my response, you can go onto my website at drtinaweb.com. That's D-R-T-I-N-A-W-E-B-B.com. Click on Ask Dr. Tina and submit your questions, comments, etc. Whatever you want, you can submit it there. So what I wanted to talk about today, I'm not sure if you all know, but a few weeks ago, a YouTube star and a dancer, her name is Nicole Thea. She sadly passed away unexpectedly at the age of 24. Now she was about eight months pregnant. And tragically, you know, her baby died as well, her son. According to her family, she was healthy. She didn't have any health issues. Um, She was going to be giving birth in a few weeks. And then the morning that she and the baby died, she had been complaining to her boyfriend and saying that she was having chest pains and back pains. And then in the weeks before she died, she was saying that she was having a hard time breathing. And it's just so sad. You know, in April, she had announced her pregnancy and she was really excited and Um, She would post videos of her pregnancy journey and videos with her boyfriend, just doing various things. And she posted a lot of special moments that she shared with everyone, like her maternity photo shoot and her boyfriend dancing with the baby carriage. And they were just, you know, super excited. And her fans were very happy for her as well. And the cause of her death, you know, it's not known, but the family believes that she died due to a massive heart attack at age 24, y'all. And I wanted to talk about this today because the death of Nicole Thea and her baby puts the spotlight on a very, very tragic trend that has been affecting black women for years. And that is the high 
death rate of pregnant black women and their babies in the United States. We've seen it with friends, you know, family members, co-workers. You may have experienced losing a baby or losing someone you love who was pregnant or just gave birth or or you survived a life threatening childbirth or pregnancy situation. We've heard about it happening to black female celebrities who share their difficulties with pregnancy and childbirth, like Beyonce. She shared her struggle with preeclampsia, which led her to being put on bed rest for over a month. And then she had to have an emergency C-section when she was pregnant with her twins. The twins ended up having to spend weeks in the NICU, which is, you know, the neonatal intensive care unit. And Beyonce said that she was in survival mode because the health of her self and her babies were in danger. And if you're not familiar with preeclampsia, it, you might have you might have even heard it being called like toxemia. And that's just because, you know, it might be caused by toxins in the blood. It's a condition in pregnancy in which the mother develops, you know, they could develop high blood pressure. She's retaining fluid and she's swollen and there's protein in the urine and it can cause damage to the liver and the kidneys. And if it's not treated, it can lead to serious complications like the mother can start having seizures um, and it can lead to death of the mother and the baby. So the treatment is to deliver the baby. The baby has to come out. But even after delivery, it takes a long time for the mother to get better. Usually um, people will develop preeclampsia towards the end of their pregnancy, but some people will get it even earlier than that. And when they have preeclampsia early on and the baby hasn't matured and the baby can't be delivered yet, it's very challenging for doctors and for the mother. And it's rare, but sometimes people can develop preeclampsia after the baby is already born. And, you know, so if we talk about Kenya Moore, she was, um, you know, Miss USA, Miss Gone with the Wind, fabulous from um, Atlanta Housewives. She had the same thing happen to her. She ended up gaining 17 pounds in one week when she was about eight months pregnant due to preeclampsia. And she had to have an emergency C-section. And then we have Serena Williams. She had a very, very difficult time um, when she was given during her childbirth. So she had to have an emergency C-section because her baby's heart rate had went low. And then the next day, you know, she had already had the baby. The next day, um, she ended up having a pulmonary embolism that almost killed her. And a pulmonary embolism is one of the most severe complications that can happen when somebody is pregnant. And it's basically when somebody gets blood clots in their lungs. So a blood clot is blocking an artery in the lung and a pulmonary embolism like they normally happen during labor and delivery or shortly after labor and delivery. And it can kill the mother if it's not treated immediately. So what they treat it with is, you know, they might give them blood thinners. Um, if it happens while during labor and delivery, then it might become an emergency situation where they have to have a C-section. And pulmonary embolisms are so serious. It's the leading cause of maternal deaths. So if a woman has a history of blood clots, varicose veins, um, what they call it, deep vein thrombosis, then they are at higher risk than normal for pulmonary uh, embolism while they're pregnant. Like in Serena Williams's case, she has a history of blood clots. So when she felt the shortness of breath, she was able to tell the doctors that she needed an ultrasound. She needed a scan. And at first they didn't. They thought her pain medication was making her confused and they didn't listen to her. She had to keep pushing the issue, but they ended up listening. And then sure enough, 
She had several blood clots in her lungs. And I just feel for Serena Williams because she just she went through a really, really horrific um, experience because after, you know, they found out she had the pulmonary embolism, she's having like coughing spells and she's coughing so hard that her cesarean opened up. So she had to go back into surgery. And then when she went back into surgery, they noticed that she was hemorrhaging from the blood thinners. They caused a hematoma. So she was basically bleeding all in her stomach. And then she ended up having the surgery to fix that. So, you know, it was just horrible. And then for six weeks after after she had her baby, she couldn't get out of bed. And then remember Eric Garner, the man who was placed in a chokehold and murdered by police in 2014 for selling single cigarettes um, in New York. Well, in 2017, his 27 year old daughter, Erica Garner, she gave birth to her son and then she had a heart attack. And then four months later, she had another heart attack and then she went into a coma and she never woke up. She ended up dying four months after she gave birth. Tragic. And then if you recall, Judge Hatchett, I don't know if y'all remember Judge Hatchett. She had a TV show and her son's wife, basically Judge Hatchett's daughter-in-law, Her name was Kira Johnson. She died after giving birth in 2016. And what happened to Kira Johnson is that, you know, she had a C-section and this one was it was scheduled. It was an emergency C-section. It was just a normal routine C-section to deliver her baby. And, you know, she delivered her baby. And while she was recovering, she was complaining that she was having pain. And her husband noticed that in her catheter, it was filling up with blood. So he was like trying to get the medical staff telling them, you know, he said, please look, my wife isn't doing doing well. And he said that the medical staff lady, the woman looked at him directly in his eyes and says, sir, your wife isn't a priority right now. And so her husband um, said for four hours, he was continually ignored by the staff. After seven hours, the doctor finally examined her and then realized she needed uh, medical attention. So they took her back into surgery. When they opened her up, there was three and a half liters of blood in her stomach, in her abdomen, and they let her bleed. So basically, they let her bleed internally for almost 10 hours after she gave birth. Her heart stopped immediately and she died from internal bleeding from a lacerated bladder. So when they were doing the C-section, they cut her bladder a little bit, you know, um, they nicked it. So that could have been fixed if they would have caught it on time, if they would have listened to her husband when he said, hey, something is wrong. She's saying she's in pain and there's blood um, in her catheter. So black mothers are being failed. We are in a state of emergency. And um, Kira's husband ended up filing a lawsuit against the hospital. And this happened in Los Angeles at Cedar sinai which is known as a world class hospital. But he ended up suing them for the doctor failing to properly respond to her symptoms and to adequately treat her when she started bleeding after giving birth. And he won. On today's segment of Ask Dr. Tina, I wanted to read a statement from Kira Johnson's husband. His name is Charles Johnson, and he's Judge Hatchett's son. I want to read a statement from him regarding the death of his wife, as well as a quote from Kenya Moore regarding her life-threatening experience. So what Charles Johnson said, and I quote, We walked in for what we expected to be the happiest day of our life, and we walked straight into a nightmare. I sit awake at nights thinking maybe I should have grabbed somebody by the collar. Maybe I should have turned a table over. Would that have made a difference? Even two years later, I still can't make sense of it in my mind. 
You know, it's just so sad. And unfortunately, this is the reality for so many black families. And that's why I wanted to talk about this today. So when Kenya Moore spoke of her experience, she said, and I quote, they couldn't get the baby out. There were all these complications and they knew if they cut into a fibroid, I could potentially bleed out and die. So they ended up cutting me vertically, too, to just get the baby out and make sure I survived the surgery. They were so scared they were going to lose me. So that was Kenya Moore's experience. You know, it's just so horrific and scary and just tragic, um, even for celebrities. And now in the cases with these celebrities, it's not the same for many black women, especially those who have less money and are even living in poverty. Many black women don't receive the kind of life saving treatment that Beyonce got, that Kenya Moore got, that Serena Williams did. Pregnancy and delivery complications and death are high for black mothers, for black babies. So today I want to dig deeper into the high maternal and infant death rates in the black community. So let's talk about it. Like with all things, I think it's important to look at history. If we go back and we look at the history of the medical profession and its relationship in regards to black people, and its relationship in regards to slaves, we see that doctors and people with medical training have always served the interest of white people. When we look at slavery, doctors serve the interest of slave owners and not the slaves. So if we take it back to the Middle Passage, and the Middle Passage is when Africans were taken from Africa, they were packed onto ships, and they were transported across the Atlantic. The trips took three to four months and the enslaved people were laid on the bottom of the ship and, you know, on the part that was used for cargo. They were chained in rows on the floor and on the shelves that ran around the inside of the hull of the ships. And it was very small. Some people had to crouch down and they were chained. There would be 600 or more enslaved people packed onto these ships. And, you know, they kept making these trips. They did it about there were about 35,000 ships that took this trip. So over 20 million Africans were loaded onto these ships and transported during the Middle Passage by American and European traders. And half of those 20 million people died during those voyages. It was horrific what was happening on these ships, just human terror and misery. There was no room to move. They couldn't breathe. People's elbows and wrists were being scraped to the bone from the motion of the boat. People died of disease, fevers, smallpox, stomach bugs, starvation. People were dying and being tossed overboard or just being left chained to the person that was next to them. So there was a lot of nausea and vomiting, urine and feces, the smells, the sounds, the violence the sexual abuse, and of course, there was resistance and rebellion. And then there was also savage, savage punishment, tortures and murders and bodies, black bodies just thrown overboard to the sharks and so much more. It was just horrific. And during this time, slave traders hired surgeons and doctors. They were hired to inspect the slaves to determine who would most likely survive the trip across the Atlantic. And the surgeons that were brought on the trips, they weren't brought on out of concern for the slaves. They were brought on out of concern for the slave traders. It was they had one mission, one job only. 
They were, first of all, they were often unqualified, but they were paid to keep the slaves alive only so that the traders could make the maximum profit off of the black body. When the enslaved people made it to America and they made it to the South, you know, in the slave markets in the South, doctors were there. And what would the doctors do? They would strip the men and women and children naked and inspect them from head to toe. And then they would sign certificates of soundness um, for the buyers and sellers, basically saying if it's a good black body or if it's not. And during the 1800s, that's when doctors were writing medical journals and they were putting things in there saying that being able to determine the value of black bodies is a key professional skill that doctors need to have. Determine the value of black bodies that white doctors determine the value of black bodies. Insurance companies were even hiring doctors. The doctors were examining the enslaved men and women before they issued life insurance policies. And this was to protect the slaveholder, to protect their financial well-being. Even in death, black bodies were disrespected and commodified by doctors because they used our bodies as teaching material. They dissected our cadavers, black corpses, specimens, and put our bodies in medical museums of white medical schools. And back then in the 18th and 19th centuries, in the professional writings of white doctors um, during slavery, they built their reputation off of medicalizing blackness. So because of this, you know, you see a lot of racialized medical thought like doctors would say things like you know or put it in medical books that black people have weaker lungs than white people white people have a higher lung capacity than black people or they would measure our skulls and say that you know we don't have our skulls show that we don't have morals we don't have intelligence compared to white people we're inferior So because of this racialized medical thought, you know, these extreme irrational beliefs that are false, um, these racial theories went from just being something that, you know, doctors during slavery did pro slavery doctors. It went to from from them doing it to now just becoming a part of the language of the whole medical profession. So because of this history of doctors and slavery and their racial theories, we can't say that the medical profession is free from racism. Because if that were true, then we would not have all of these racial disparities, disproportionalities of health, and health gaps among black people. If we look at enslaved women in the 1800s, let's take it back. In the 1800s, when the transatlantic slave trade was banned from the U.S. in the early 1800s, They weren't able to take African people from Africa and bring them to the United States. That was no longer an option for the the slaveholders. So what did they do? They started to focus on black women, on enslaved women, on them getting pregnant to keep the system of slavery in place. Because they already had laws saying that children born to enslaved women would become slaves. So slave owners were banking and depending on black women getting pregnant their childbearing. It became the focus of chattel slavery. And chattel slavery is when um, a slave is owned forever and then their children are owned and then their children's children are automatically slaves. They were treated completely as property and they were bought and sold. And that's chattel slavery. It was legalized by the government. And in medical journals and records during that time, you can see 
the attention that white doctors paid to black women, to slaves getting pregnant, to their reproductive health. They wrote about it. They wrote things comparing black women's bodies to white women. And they wrote things to justify their behavior, to justify slavery. They would say, you know, black women's bodies compared to white women, black women are able to work in the field and be pregnant. And a white woman could not, as if there was some difference in a black woman's body as a means to say that they can handle it because they're subhuman. And all this matters because the legal and medical attention to enslave women's bodies plays a role in racism and our medical system. It plays a role in our public health crisis involving black women and black babies today. During slavery, most of the health care on the plantation, it was taken care of by black women, by enslaved midwives and nurses. So slave owners, they only called white doctors um, when it was like, you know, they needed help with maybe a baby was having a difficult birth and they needed forceps or a doctor would come out to examine like the slave women who were infertile and who weren't getting pregnant or they'd come out and investigate when a baby died. And this was all for the benefit of the slave owner. They didn't care about the enslaved women and they didn't care about black bodies except to preserve them to be able to work and keep slavery going. That's all the doctors cared about. They only cared to have black women having babies to keep slavery going, to make those babies property so that they can be bought and sold and worked on the plant and work on the plantation. That's it. And we have to remember that these doctors were also slave owners as well. During this time, the infant mortality rate was high. Half of the enslaved babies were born, you know, they were stillborn or they died before they turned a year old. There was no pediatrics field back then. There was no studies to find out, you know, what's going on with babies and and everything that we have now. White doctors back then, they were pretty much useless. They didn't have any explanations as to why the babies were dying. So the only thing that they could do was blame the the black mother, blame the enslaved mother, blame the midwives. They would use racist language. They would attack them verbally. They said so many really harsh things instead of saying that the infant's deaths were due to basically what really was causing the deaths is the hard labor, the poor nutrition, which was whose fault? The slave owners fought, which was the doctors fought and not to mention the stress of being a slave. And along with this harsh uh, treatment that doctors gave to enslaved women, they also used their access to our black bodies to expand their scientific knowledge and build their reputations, their professional reputations. They wrote journals, they wrote books, you know, they um, started this racialized medicine, this racialized science. When we look at gynecology, OBGYN, a lot of their surgical techniques were developed by them experimenting on black bodies, on the bodies of slave women who were sick. They experimented on them until they were either cured or they died. Like with the cesarean section, C-sections, they were performed on slaves repeatedly. They repeatedly experimented on black women's bodies by doing cesareans. In the 1900s, there was this famous um, gynecologist, a white gynecologist that got famous off of experimenting on a group of slave women. He created a surgical technique to repair. Like sometimes when women have babies, they would get a hole in the birth canal 
due to childbirth. It's called a fistula. So he created a technique to repair that, but at the expense of experimenting on black women's bodies. So gynecology has advanced as a result of black women, as a result of experimenting on slaves and so many other atrocities that black people have faced at the hands of medical professionals. And as a result, black people have this difficult relationship when it comes down to trusting doctors. All of this racialized medicine has caused the black community to not trust doctors who in the past have a history of only being interested in black women's bodies, black babies, black reproductive health, health as a means to keep slavery going. And doctors aren't always sensitive to the concerns of black people. And they don't acknowledge sometimes and they have secrets about the horrible things that have been done to black people in the name of medicine. Some doctors don't even know the horrible things that have been done. And there is a history of the medical profession dismissing black women's reports of pain and complaints that something is wrong in their bodies. All of this history is important because it still plays a role in the continued health disparities that we face today. It plays a role in the reasons why black mothers and black babies are dying today. And I say this because of structural racism, institutionalized racism. It plays a huge role as a stressor that contributes to black health issues. There is a history of racial discrimination and disregard of black people's symptoms and complaints at hospitals, at clinics, at doctor's offices, by nurses, by doctors, in medical institutions, period. Now, the reason why I talked about slavery is because we are still dealing with the effects of it. Like I said, the racialized medicine. As a result of slavery today, black people are less likely to get the same treatment in terms of pain medication. We're more likely to have to wait longer in the emergency room. And we're less likely to be taken seriously when we complain of things that are bothering us. There is a history and it still happens today that when black mothers who are pregnant or who have already had their babies, when they report to their doctors that they're having pain or some painful symptoms, they are often overlooked. Their symptoms are minimized by the doctor. The doctor will say, oh, it's because you um, because of X, Y, Z or it's because you've done this or that. They will come up with all the ways that you make yourself more sick or you make your same yourself prone to being sick. They say, oh, it's because you're overweight. Oh, what have you been eating? You need to exercise. What have you been doing? Oh, it's your age. Oh, you missed an appointment and that could affect your prenatal care. Or are you taking your prenatal pills or, you know, so black mothers are often made from the get go from the jump as being responsible for their own deaths and for the deaths of their babies. There have been studies done that show some doctors believe that black people experience pain differently than white people, which is totally false. But this thinking and these racialized theories lead black people to not getting the treatment that we need to, to get an inappropriate treatment, to being overlooked and dismissed. That just shows how the treatment of enslaved people and the racist medical journals and books that were written back then, they still have an influence on the medical profession today when it comes down to black people. Systematic racism, institutionalized racism, it is ingrained in every fabric of America, including the medical field. So it's critical 
that we talk about and we find ways to protect the health of black mothers and black babies. You know, black women have the highest infant mortality rates among any racial or ethnic group in the United States. I don't know if you know, but black babies die two times more than white women. So for every thousand babies that are born, about five white babies die and 11 black babies die. In the United States, you know, the rates of white mothers dying is gone down, but the rates of black mothers dying is going up. Black mothers, you know, we have been giving birth prematurely, preterm babies, giving birth way before the due dates and babies have low birth weights, which makes black babies three times more likely to die due to complications related to them being small, them having a low birth weight. And for any baby or of any race, more deaths happen from birth to one month old. That's called the neonatal period. And then during the postnatal period, which is one month old to one year. So babies die from birth to one years old. And in the United States, black women are three to four times more likely to die in pregnancy, childbirth, or, you know, within the year after they have their baby, which is postpartum, they're more likely to die than white women. Now, when we talk about infant mortality, we're talking about the death of an infant before his or her first birthday. And just to put it in perspective and give some numbers, there are about or over there are over 3 million babies born each year. And there are about 20,000 babies that die each year. Black babies make up a large portion of that 20,000 and they die from birth defects, preterm birth, which is um, when babies are born before nine months or before 37 weeks. If you go by weeks, I forgot the week stuff because I haven't had a baby in so long, but babies die from low birth weight. You know, they're born small or the mother may have had, you know, some complications when she was pregnant. Babies die from SIDS, from sudden infant death. And then um, babies also die from injuries like suffocation. That's why they tell you don't sleep in the bed with your baby um, because you can smother them. Uh, it's just a lot of different things and reasons why babies die. But in black women, there are a lot of preterm births and low birth weights, which leads to the high infant mortality rate. So black women, you know, they continuously experience preterm births at higher rates than white women. So black women's babies are being born early. And when babies are born early, they're normally born small. So black women experience low birth weights. Any baby under five and a half pounds is considered having a low birth weight. So preterm birth has a lot to do with um, the age of the mother, um, education, it can have to do with alcohol and drug use, stress, all of these can play a factor in why a baby may be born early and under five and a half pounds. There is a huge racial infant mortality gap in America. Black babies die twice as often as white babies. Like I said earlier, a thousand babies may be born. And then out of those thousand, 11 black babies die compared to five white babies out of that thousand will die. And the gap is so huge that the United States, there are black infant mortality rate in the United States. It's higher than it is in 97 other countries around the world. We are the highest and about 73% of black infant deaths are due to complications from being born early. 
And when we really look at the racial infant mortality gap, the gap is more than just um, babies are being born early. The gap also includes the fact that black babies will spend more time in the NICU. And the NICU, like I said earlier, is the intensive care unit for babies, the neonative intensive care unit. So black babies will spend more time in there than white babies. Black babies will stay in the NICU for four weeks, while white babies might only stay for two weeks. And then, you know, we got to look at, too, this is part of the gap. When a black baby survives being born, let's say, at five months, they are still at greater risk of dying than white babies who survive being born at five months. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why are black women in the United States more likely to have preterm babies? Why are our babies being born early? One of the main reasons is stress. Black women's stress is a huge factor and it's happening even when a when a black mother has good income. She's getting prenatal care. She's highly educated. She's checking off all the boxes and her baby is still born early. And surprisingly, black women who have college degrees are more likely to have babies with low birth weight than a white woman who has not even completed high school. And that's because black women experience chronic stress. And when people experience chronic stress, it produces hormones that damage the body over time. And this damage ends up causing us to have a lower life expectancy. It causes us to have preterm births. It causes our babies to have a low birth weight. Now, this damage in medical terms is called our allostatic load. And that's just allostatic load means wear and tear on the body. So black women have more wear and tear on the body than white women. And that's just due to the stress, to this chronic, repeated exposure to stress. The environment and society plays a huge role in our stress level. It plays a role in the damage that's caused to our body. And there are just various studies and different research that has explored this. Like, I want to share something that I found that was very interesting. Like, for example, like, let's say today an African person moved to the United States from Africa, they are going to have lower wear and tear on their body than black people who were born here. Research has shown this, but the longer that the African person lives in America, they are going to have wear and tear on their body. Their wear and tear is going to go up. It's going to increase. And that's due to the chronic stress that they are going to experience in America due to racism and sexism. And that's why black women experience more stress over the course of our lives. And and then that compounded with the normal pregnancy stress is a lot to carry. And when I talk about stress over the course of our lives, I'm talking about how a black woman can be just as qualified as a white woman and have the same income level, the same credit scores. Yet the black woman is still offered lower level housing than the white woman. And how black women are more likely to experience unstable housing situations and face evictions. I'm talking about stress from childhood where little black girls are more likely than white girls to live in housing situations that are substandard with slumlords or in the projects or where there are toxins and there's lead, asbestos, mold that causes problems to our health and our development. I'm talking about the stress of being black and all throughout your school years, you're more likely to be suspended or kicked out 
than white children for doing the same things, the same behaviors, yet there is harsher consequences for black children or even having unequal educational opportunities like no music classes in school or programs or trips to these amazing places. I'm talking about the stress of being black and growing up in poverty, growing up in unsafe neighborhoods, having poor air quality, poor access to food, whole foods, nutritional foods, and the stress of being grown and working jobs that barely make ends meet. We're getting paid less. We can't have a flexible schedule. We don't have paid um, sick days. We don't get paid holidays, no paid family leave. I'm talking about the stress of being a single mother with no support, the stress of police violence and racial profiling in our communities. All of this stress affects our mental health. Black women aren't even aware of the mental health symptoms that they might be having when they're pregnant or after they have the baby. Because we don't often know the signs of mental health issues like depression. So we normally don't report mental health issues that we might be having when we're pregnant or after we gave birth. And again, that's because of structural racism. We might not report symptoms because we don't want to be reported to child services. We have a fear that we're going to be opening up a can of worms and it's going to be monitored or something is going to go on our record and make it look like we're unfit to be a a mother, to unfit to be parents. So our mental health issues go underreported. They go untreated. Black women, you know, we just face unique challenges on an everyday basis, whether it's at work, at school, at the doctor, at the store, at the bank, wherever. And all of this stress and challenges affect our mental health. And medical professionals need to be trained to understand that. They need to understand the stress that black women go through over the course of our lives. Why is this affecting us? How does this affect us having low birth weights and um, having our babies early? They need to understand everything that we go through so that they can check their bias. And then when they check their bias, that's when they can give us the treatment that meets our needs. And that's the purpose of cultural sensitivity, cultural awareness, diversity trainings and stuff like that. And then outside of stress, there are other issues, social issues that affect black pregnant women, like her socioeconomic status. Is she living in poverty? Is she barely making ends meet? Is she making seven figures like Beyonce and Serena Williams? It matters. Does she have access to quality health care? Does she have access to nutritious food or can she not afford it? All of these things can have an effect on the baby's health. Black people and especially black women face so many disparities. And when our babies are born early and they survive, many times it's still an uphill battle because the baby can end up having problems like breathing problems, hearing, seeing problems, um, you know, developmental delays and other long term health issues. So preventing preterm births among black women is something we have to control. We have to find a solution. Now, when we talk about black maternal mortality, we're talking about a woman who dies as a result of a pregnancy complication. And it could be that she died while she was pregnant or even within one year of being pregnant. And a woman can die from things that started happening after she got pregnant or sometimes People already have a health condition and then being pregnant and the changes in the body, um, it aggravates the condition and it leads to death. 
like with Erica Gardner. I forgot to mention earlier that she already had an enlarged heart all of her life. But while she was pregnant, she had her first heart attack. She had never had a heart attack before. So the pregnancy probably just aggravated the enlarged heart. So that's an example of somebody already having a medical condition or a a condition and then the pregnancy causing aggravation. And black women in the United States are more likely to die from pregnancy and childbirth than any other ethnicity of women. We are two to three times more likely to die from pregnancy related causes than white women. And if you're a black woman over the age of 30, then you are four to five times more likely to die than a white woman. For every 100,000 pregnancies, about 40 black women die and 17 white women die. And every year, there's about 700 women that die due to complications related to pregnancy or childbirth. And out of those 700 women, you do the math. A lot of them are black women that are dying every year. So, you know, black women are also more likely to experience um, complications throughout the course of their pregnancies than white women too. Like with fibroids, you know, black women are three times more likely to have fibroids than white women. And fibroids are tumors, they're benign tumors, and they grow in the uterus and they can cause hemorrhaging, bleeding after, you know, a person gives birth. So, um, and also too, in black women, fibroids, they end up coming up, up on black women at a younger age, and they grow more quickly. So another thing to know is that black women often um, display signs of preeclampsia earlier in their pregnancy than white women as well. And the sad thing is that black women are dying when most of these pregnancy related deaths can be prevented. And that's why this is a public health emergency. It's a crisis in the black community. Oftentimes, um, the pregnant black women are dying because they have a weakened heart muscle or heart disease or a pulmonary embolism, high blood pressure. They might have a stroke and uh, they might be having hemorrhaging. So those are the reasons why black women die during pregnancy. There are just too many black women that are dying in pregnancy and childbirth. Too many black babies that are dying. Why is this happening to us? Why are black mothers and infants dying? If we break it down, you will see that we are having problems with society, problems with the health system that contribute to these high rates of black mothers and babies that are dying. Like I said So many times we are dealing with institutional racism, sexism, a healthcare system that is unequal. It's not fair. It's biased. And healthcare workers need training. Black women aren't getting quality care. And there are barriers that keep us from getting it. Like if we look at income because of racism, because of sexism, because of systematic issues, black women aren't getting paid what they're worth. Most women aren't, regardless of race. But for black women, we're paid 63 cents for every dollar that a white man gets. For every dollar that a white man gets, we get 63 cents. And because of this, as a black woman, we have less money to spend to support ourselves, to support our families. We're put in positions where we have to choose and prioritize between paying the rent, paying the mortgage, paying for child care buying groceries and food and paying for health care, paying for medicine, going to the doctor, going to a clinic versus going to a hospital. They're all essential and they're all necessary things, but black women don't always have money for all of them. 
And because of all these sacrifices and trying to juggle everything, our health often goes neglected. Our health care goes neglected. Like I remember when I got out the military, I got out the military. I was struggling. I was going through a divorce. I had two little babies. You know, they were two and four years old and I was raising them by myself and I was working a security job. I had just got that job and it was early in the morning. So I'm rushing out the door with the kids. And mind you, I had just moved in with a cousin and I had to pay rent there. And I was new on that job, like I said, and they paid me pennies on that job. I was barely making it, barely able to put gas in a car, barely able to feed us. My mama would come and watch the kids. I mean, well, I would take the kids to her so she can watch the kids for me when I had to go to work, um, when I had to go on interviews or whatever. My mama was there because I couldn't afford childcare. We would eat over at my mother's house. You know, it was just a really hard time for me. And I remember, so this one morning I had got up, like I said, and I'm rushing to work and the kids were tired. We walk into the car. I had my security uniform on. The kids were crying and falling all out. So I had to pick them up and I'm carrying them down the street, both of them on each one of my hips. And I get to the car I put one baby in the car and then I have the other one on my hip. I'm about to go around to put him in the car and I stepped in a pothole. I twisted my ankle so bad. I probably tore a ligament or something, but I was just in so much pain. I just remember that I had to set the baby on the trunk and then I just fell down on the curb, rocking and crying, but I had to get to work. I could not lose this job. I didn't have time that I could take off or call off. It wasn't like that. You know, I had. I, and so I got in the car and I drove to my mom's house on that ankle, dropped the kids off, drove to work. I limped into work and I had to stand up for eight hours at work. I didn't have any health insurance. My ankle was swollen like a grapefruit. It was so big. It was so painful. And I was just thinking like, oh, my God, like, please, I hope I don't lose my foot. Like, what is what am I going to do? And I never went to the doctor. I went to CVS and I got, you know, compression um, thing to hold it in. I got, you know, um, Tylenol and, and just different stuff and tried to remedy myself because I couldn't afford to miss work because I had to pay the rent. I had to feed us. And I didn't know how it worked if you need to go to the doctor and you don't have insurance. I didn't know where to start. I didn't have money. So I sacrificed myself and my health to make sure that I could take care of us. And my ankle has been messed up to this day, y'all. So I understand having to pick and choose and make sacrifices. You know, studies have shown that um, compared to white women, black women are more likely to not have health insurance like me during that time. And when we do need medical care, we may not be able to afford it like me during that time. So we face financial issues that prevent us from getting the care that we need. And because of that, black women are often less likely to use prenatal care. You know, black women don't always have access to early and adequate prenatal care, like um, maternal health screenings or parent education or counseling on healthy behaviors. And when we do have prenatal care, say we have it on time and we're doing it in the first trimester, black babies are still dying compared to white women who may have had late or no prenatal care. And that could be due to the fact that when black women do have access to prenatal care, it tends to be of a lower quality. 
And of course, if we have diabetes, hypertension, you know, cardiovascular disease, then those conditions also affect the maternal and infant health outcomes. So our physical health has a lot to do with it too. Smoking, drinking, drug abuse, obesity, all that can lead to complications in pregnancy like preterm babies and low birth weights. But black women aren't doing any of these behaviors more than any other ethnicity. So I don't want y'all to go thinking that like, oh, you know, oh, black women are smoking and drinking and using drugs and obese more than anybody else. Um, No, that's not the case. We just have higher rates of chronic health conditions, though. We do have higher rates of obesity and higher rates of diabetes, high blood pressure and heart disease. But all of those can be preventable and treatable. But what is also happening, like I mentioned earlier, is that doctors have biases and structural racism affects how black women are cared for. We are treated unequally in the healthcare system. We aren't monitored as carefully as white women are. Doctors don't communicate the same with black women. And there are gaps in our communication sometimes with um, our health providers. There's miscommunication. And, you know, when black women report symptoms and complain of pain, like I said earlier, it's often dismissed by doctors. And then black women, you know, we feel devalued and disrespected sometimes by medical providers. So we may not speak up about something that's bothering us. Another thing to know is that 75 percent of black women give birth at hospitals that mostly black people go to. So they're giving birth at hospitals that serve predominantly black people. And these hospitals that serve mostly black people, they provide lower quality maternity care. They have high rates of maternal complications than in, than other hospitals. And they perform worse when it comes down to vaginal deliveries, emergency C-sections and maternal deaths. And if that doesn't show you that there is a huge issue here and that race matters and that there is structural racism that's included, why is it that we are going to a hospital, you serve mostly black people, you know, we should be comfortable there, this should be a good thing. No, it's not a good thing, because you're getting lower quality care. And that just shows the value of the black body is still devalued. Another issue is that, you know, white women and other ethnicities, they have access to reproductive health care. And black women aren't always able to access that. Like white women will plan their families. They sit down with their doctors and they discuss their plans to have a baby. They get tests done before they even get pregnant. They prepare themselves to get pregnant. They get tips from their reproductive health care team that tell them what to do. And that helps to improve the health outcomes for themselves and their babies. Or they have screenings for sexually transmitted infections and cervical cancer. Black women don't always have access to this type of treatment. We experience high rates of unintended pregnancies or unplanned pregnancies. And we experience this more than any other ethnicity. And that goes back to some of the disparities in the healthcare system. We not always we might not always have access to birth control methods and counseling. Studies have shown that black women are less likely than white women or Latina women to receive birth control after we've had a baby. And when we do receive it, it's a method that's not highly effective or it doesn't meet our needs. Like we might get birth control pills instead of an IUD or a depot shot and be bleeding for months and months and gain a lot of weight as opposed to getting an implant or something. 
So you see how this legacy of racism in the United States contributes to maternal and infant mortality among black women. We have to dismantle and undo this system. Our lives are depending on it. Our babies' lives are depending on it. It is tragic to lose a baby. It's tragic to lose a mother. It's devastating to our families. It's devastating to the black community. We have to work to eliminate these disparities and we have to find ways to prevent it, ways to cope. Let me tell you how. Y'all know what time it is. It's time to cope. It's time to pull out your coping toolbox. Today, I'm going to give us some tools to cope with black maternal and infant mortality. Remember, we are going to be building this coping toolbox every time we're together so we can keep everything that we need that can calm us during times of distress and help us to express how we feel in healthy ways. So the first thing that we need in order to cope with this issue, we need to ensure that black women have access to quality health care before, during and after pregnancy. Now, if you're thinking about getting pregnant, you are pregnant or if you want to support somebody who is pregnant or just overall as a black woman to reduce your stress. I want you to practice reducing stress, do meditation, do some mindfulness, learn some stress reduction techniques, attend a support group, exercise, walk, get a massage, do these things before, during and after pregnancy. I want you to know that what we did today helps as well. Understanding the causes of pregnancy-related deaths and the reasons for maternal mortality and how it affects Black women at a high rate is helpful. And share this info with people you know, because knowing the information can help us to change in ways that can improve our health before, during, and after pregnancy. Another thing I want you to do, and this is crucial, you have to speak up. Speak up if you are not getting the appropriate care. Ask to speak to a different nurse. Ask to speak to a different doctor. Report them if you have to. You know, they're not inside of your body. I used to say that when I was a little kid. You're not in my body. And it's true, though. You know, I used to tell my parents, I got a headache. And they say, you ain't got no headache. And I used to say, you're not in my body. And they wasn't in my body. They're not in my body to tell me that I don't have a headache. The same thing with doctors. They're not in your body to tell you that you're not in pain when you say that you are. You know, if you're thinking about getting pregnant, then maybe quit smoking. If you are pregnant, you know, don't smoke. Don't use drugs. Don't drink alcohol so that your baby isn't born early or preterm. And that doesn't mean that your baby won't be born preterm if you never did these things anyway. But you definitely give it a Give your baby a, the best shot that you can and make sure that you're getting prenatal care. Talk to your doctor, too, about how to manage chronic conditions. If you have diabetes or high heart disease, high blood pressure, obesity, talk to your doctor about how to manage it and take advantage too. like I said, your um, doctor's office. They have reproductive health care teams. And before you get pregnant, you can go and you can plan your family. You can let them know what your plans are and they can run the tests on you and and everything that's needed. So, you know, it's very important too to communicate with your doctor and ask them about warning signs. Like what do they use and what do they do when there are warning signs? Like before anything happens, find out, ask them, 
what they do to catch it early so that you can receive treatment in a timely manner. Like, do you do a CT scan right away? You know, I have a history of blood clots and I have a history of varicose veins like this concerns me. Talk to your doctor about it. You know, you want to make sure that your family too, your family knows and you guys are communicating about symptoms of complications. So your your kids need to know, your your partner needs to know, hey, if I'm complaining about chest pains, take me to the doctor. If I can't breathe, take me despite what I might say. If I can't breathe and you see I'm having a hard time, tell your daddy so he can come in here and see what's going on with me. You know, talk to your kids, talk to your spouse and let them know so that you guys can all be on the same page. And if you see a new doctor or you get any medical treatment in the year after you gave birth, make sure you tell them that you were pregnant. Hey, I just had a baby six months ago. I just had a baby a year ago. They need to know this so that they can be aware of any postpartum issues that could come up. And if you feel like you need a test done or a scan or you can't breathe, you make them do it. Have somebody there with you who can have your back and make these doctors do what you are asking for in a timely manner. You you know your body. Like I said earlier, you know when you don't feel right. Say something. And if it turns out to be nothing, then cool. But at least you know. And these days, you know, black women, um, they have their doula present with them. They'll have their midwife at the hospital by their side and they will communicate to the doctor of what's bothering you. And the doctors tend to listen. So that's an option too. get a doula, get a midwife if you can or if you want. If you've lost a baby during pregnancy or childbirth, um, you know, sometimes talking about your baby and your feelings might be helpful. It might comfort you. You might talk to your partner. You might talk to your family or your friends, but also talking to somebody who is trained to help you deal with grief can be helpful, like a therapist or a religious or spiritual leader, a grief counselor. You can talk to your doctor and it might help you to understand, you know, what happened to cause your baby's death. You know, talking to um, a mental health professional can help you learn ways to cope with your grief. Um, You can also join a support group or a bereavement group. There are even groups online that you can join as well. And sharing your story might help you to heal or just hearing what has helped other people get through this difficult time might be helpful to you. And, you know, please just take care of yourself because your body still needs to heal as well. I'm going to be doing a show about grief and loss as we go along and you'll be able to learn more. But for now, I just want you to know that there is no time limit on your grief. Some people may expect you to get over it in a certain amount of time, but it takes time. Take as much time as you need to cope. And as you grieve, you might feel like you're not getting as much support from other people. But that doesn't mean that they've forgotten about you. That doesn't mean that they've forgotten about your baby or that they don't care. It just, you know, sometimes people just don't know what to say and what to do. So you might just need to tell them that you still need them. Tell them that you're still going through it and you need their support. And then people are open to that and they'll be there for you. So don't isolate yourself too much and and your mind just starts going and you feel like you're in it alone, you know. You can do um, special things to remember your baby, too. Like even if you didn't have a chance to see your baby, hold your baby, touch your baby, you can remember your baby in ways that you feel are special. Like you can make a scrapbook 
or a keepsake box and put things in it that remind you of your baby, like, you know, maybe the ultrasound pictures or um, a hospital bracelet or photos or clothes, you know, blankets or toys that you you may have bought or, you know, footprints. Um, You can also have a service for your baby, like a memorial service or a funeral. And that can give you a chance to honor your baby, you know, to say goodbye to your baby and just share your grief with family and friends. And some hospitals, too, they might have like once a year or each year um, a service that they they do to remember babies that have died. So that's something that you can do, too, and participate in if you want. And another thing that could be helpful is if you write your feelings, write down your thoughts and your feelings in a journal, write letters, write poems you know, about your baby to your baby, tell your baby how you feel and how much you miss your baby or paint a picture for him or her. You know, you can do these same things if you have lost the mother of your child, if you have lost a family member due to um, pregnancy related or childbirth issues. If you've lost somebody, you can remember them in a special way. You can um, make a keepsake box for them. Like I said, make a scrapbook. You know, write your feelings down the same thing that you would do um, if you lost a baby. Do the same things for when you lose the mother of the child to pregnancy related and childbirth issues. You know, you can light a candle or say a prayer in honor of them on holidays and special days. Like maybe it's their birthday. You can do that or the day that they died. Do something you know, on your own, that brings your family and friends together to remember your baby, to remember your loved one who passed away during childbirth. You know, just do things that bring you comfort, whether it's music or um, reading a book or going for a drive or whatever makes you feel comforted. You can also plant a tree in the garden and in honor or in memory of of the loved one or the baby. You can also, um, you can have a piece of jewelry made, get a chain and put the initials of your baby or the birthstone or the family member that you lost. You know, you can also get very creative and you can donate or you can volunteer for a charity in your baby's name, in your loved one's name who passed who you've lost. Maybe you want to give something to a child who needs it. That's something you can you can always do. You know, you can raise money to build a jungle gym at the park or something. You can do so many different things, whatever you want that you feel is comforting and it helps you to honor the baby or the mother who has passed. You know, when you've lost a child or someone due to complications from pregnancy, it's confusing. This is a very difficult time for the whole family. It's one of the most painful things that can happen to a family. And even your other children, your older children, they might need to talk to someone. Your younger children might need um, help understanding. You can there's ways that you can explain it to them because children tend to cope better with grief when you explain to them what's happening. And don't try to hide it from them because then they start to act out and they start to have tantrums and just different behaviors. So just, you know, there's ways that you can explain to them what happened. And if you're having thoughts of suicide, please call 911, get a doctor, tell your partner, tell a friend, tell your mother, especially if you are in a state of depression, which you might be and you don't know, please reach out for help. 
And just remember that men and women grieve differently. There's no right way. There's no wrong way to grieve. You know, your partner might want to grieve by themselves, especially men. They, they like to work through it alone instead of talking about it or asking for help. So he might not want to talk about his loss. He might spend more time like at the gym or at work or away from the house. And that's just to take his mind off of the loss. So he may feel like he's supposed to be strong, like most men do. They feel like they have to be strong. They got to be tough. They got to protect the family. They can't show that emotion. It's not their time to to do that because they have to take care of everyone else and protect you guys. But he might not know also how to show his feelings. So he might think that talking about his feelings makes him weak. You may want to talk about the death of your baby. You may feel like talking about The death of your baby to as many people as possible is what can help you to heal, you know, and you might cry and yell a lot, but your partner is silent. That that doesn't mean that they're not grieving and you might be more likely to ask for help. Your partner may not. So you have to look at it. You might go to church or go to a place of worship and go to a support group and your partner may not. Like I said, they might want to be alone. They're going to the gym. They're doing other things. So just be patient with each other. If someone you know has lost a child or loved one due to pregnancy or childbirth and you don't know what to say or do to comfort them, you can say that. Just tell them that I don't know what to do, but I'm here. I don't know how to help, but I'm here. I want to be here for you. And that might be enough in that moment. You can bring them a meal. You can do their grocery shopping. You can take their children out for the day or let the kids go spend a night at your house and see if they need help around their house. You know, you can offer to wash their clothes or the kids clothes. Ask if it's okay for you to do these things. You know, they may not want you to do it. But you can offer. And if they want to be left alone, respect that. Give them the time to grieve. But what you don't want to say is stuff like, you know, everything happens for a reason. Or you can have another baby. Maybe it was for the best. Let go. Move on. Life goes on. Be thankful you had the time that you did with your baby. Please don't say these things. Be thankful you still have your other kids. At least the baby didn't suffer. All of that is unhelpful and it's not comforting. So please try not to say stuff like that. Just don't say anything. Everything doesn't require a response. Sometimes you can just sit there in silence with them and that's comforting. If you feel like you have to say something, Then try to say something like, you know, I'm thankful for you. I'm grateful for your child. I'm thankful for our friendship. I'm thankful to witness the courage and the strength that you have. You know, I got you. I love you. We'll get through this. Stuff like that. Now, if you're pregnant right now during COVID-19, during this pandemic, please communicate with your doctor. Isolate yourself. Stay indoors if you can. Wear your face mask when you go out. Limit your interactions with other people as much as possible. You know, people can't be coming over your house like that. You can't be going over and hanging out at people's house. You know, this COVID-19 is no joke. 
So we got to do everything we can to protect ourselves, especially if you're pregnant. And then also, too, I don't know if you know, but there are virtual doulas that you can look into. So if um, you can get a virtual doula, that might be an option for you. And, you know, if you start feeling sick and you think you might have COVID-19, call your health care provider within 24 hours. If you have to go out, then, like I said, make sure you have your cloth face covering. Protect yourself, have some tissues, have your hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol. This is coming from the CDC. This is what they recommend. And if you can avoid other people who are not wearing their face coverings and ask people to put one on if they're around you, you know, just try to protect yourself as best as you can. You got to protect you and that baby. And that's all the tools I got. I hope this was helpful. You know, write to me. Let me know. Was I talking too loud? Did I smack my my lips too much? Um, was the information helpful? Did I leave something out that you have a question about that you'd like to know more about? Let me know. Go on to Ask Dr. Tina and type away. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I love hearing from you. Now go ahead and put those toolboxes away. It's time for one of my favorite parts of the show, y'all. Movie therapy, music therapy. I would like to dedicate today's show to the song, I'll Be Missing You by Puff Daddy or Diddy and Faith Evans. And the song says, Every step I take, every move I make, every single day, every time I pray, I'll be missing you. Thinking of the day when you went away. What a life to take, what a bond to break, I'll be missing you. One black morning when this life is over, I know I'll see your face. I believe that. I receive that. And I mean that. It's coping season, y'all. Thank you for joining me this week. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. You are not only listeners, you are my co-hosts, and we are a community. And I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your stories, experiences, and thoughts related to life issues, topics you'd like to hear discussed, or questions you'd like answered. Please visit me on the web at drtinaweb.com and click on Ask Dr. Tina to submit your questions, thoughts, and more. Tune in every Wednesday to hear my response. You can also check out the show notes as well as other contact information on the website. In the meantime and in between time, for additional updates, conversations, and more ways to interact, please connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Dr. Tina Webb. That's D-R-T-I-N-A-W-E-B-B. Feel free to share your thoughts from the show on social media using the hashtag Coping Season Podcast. Lastly, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you are listening to help others find the show and learn to cope just like you. 
I appreciate and read every single review. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for spreading the word to all of your friends, family, and coworkers. I so appreciate it. Thank you. And I'll see you next week.